0: you have it together of course not when did you ever have it together Mm. Mm. (laughs) not a quote little wayne but uh i'm a bit down like the economy why was anybody even making the music beyond the 2000s why 2010s why did it even happen just stop just stop like we had the hits we had the bangers stop stop producing music capitalism am i right no you are not you know nothing about music because this is not a music podcast maya hi maya is the name crazy is the game this is by all means necessary it's a true crime podcast with a comedy twist, I guess you could say so. I was listening to the iconic Jay Sean and Lil Wayne down today. I mean, the whole playlist was just legendary. And we are indeed more connected to the music that reminds us of our teenagehood. So like those crucial years when you were like between 13 and 15 is probably the music that you will still mostly connect to. I mean, I read that somewhere, you know, (laughs) could be correct. I think there's more to the psychology of that, but this is not why you're here. Today is a long one, and I don't know why I'm distracting myself with a freaking candle. There's only one crime where if you were to hear like, oh, Maya committed X, that you maybe should get concerned about, and that is arson. Like, I'm truly obsessed with fire since the early age. It'll probably be accidental. It'll probably be like me dropping this candle right now on this wooden desk. is just not smart. But hey, here we are. We are back at it with the philicides month. So again, before bringing you to hell, I chose the most ridiculous expression for this week. And that is go bananas. <laughs> because yet again, when you research philicides, after every single paragraph, you need something ridiculous. So like, you know, you go watch a couple of TikToks. Or if you're me, you go and find the article with the most commonly used expressions, which apparently going bananas is. I don't know, it was in literally every single article. It's like, oh, okay, I give it. The meaning obviously is you're doing something insane, something dumb and a bit retarded. <laughs> and the origin is linked to the previous expression, so the pre that was Go Ape, which became popular in the 1950s. Because in 1950s, apparently People in films and television in general were portraying monkeys as being launched on rockets. And then people are like, oh my god, they have gone ape. Like, they're doing something silly. And honestly, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like in your late 20s, like your homegirl here, you're probably the last generation that will remember that banana slips were considered like the peak of comedy. I mean, not the peak of comedy, right? This died out, but it was our generation that sort of was probably the last to actually witness it in some context, like on TV or watching like old movies or... I mean, it was never funny. It was never funny. But I cannot imagine a 15-year-old now seeing like a banana sleep on TV and somebody sleeping of it and being like, oh, what is this? I... They would probably be like, I've never seen this before. Whereas with me, I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, this was like a peak of comedy at certain points. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not during my time, not that old, but you get me. Association by imagery. (laughs) Explaining, Maya, explaining. So, Sleeping on a Banana Peel was a timeless classic of slapstick comedy And early in the 20th century, apparently, people used to say that's banana oil when you would say that something is nonsensical. And if you were to use the expression Banana Republic, which is weird, because there's, like, a company that's named Banana Republic, right? Like, a retail place? No? (laughs) Is that not? it? Is it not called Banana Republic? Oh, no, it is. Yeah, it's clothing. Hey, so Banana Republic, I don't know if they knew this or not, but it was used pejoratively, so in a negative sense, to refer to a chaotic, backward country that was never to be taken seriously. And this small country was to produce fruit as its primary export, logically. And then this comment on the article said that the original Banana Republic was Zimbabwe, apparently. And this was shortly after they became independent, when the president was called Kanan Banana. People from Zimbabwe actually had to pass a law that prohibited the citizens of Zimbabwe to make jokes about the guy's name. (laughs) Again, early 20th century, banana is so underrated today, you know? All of these (laughs) expressions and just connotations for the word banana just make me feel like, why don't we use any of this today? Like, it's not associated with comedy anymore. If anything, it's only associated with blowjobs, which, I mean, how disgusting. (laughs) Don't say it. Don't say it. Not me as a teenager practicing blowjobs on a banana. Cut this out. Cut this out. Because I still fail at them. (laughs) Cut this out. Normalize sucking at blowjobs. Normalize sucking banana for practice. But also normalize sucking at them. Because bananas, you know... They're not really shaped as a dick. The, 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 dicks can sometimes have curve. <laughs> this went off that dick real quick. Cut this all out. Banana also. Just completely ignore that comment you made. And move on. Banana was used as a theater slang for a member of a comedy act. So if you were top banana, you were the top shit. And you could be second banana. And it was drawn from this routine when comedians would attempt to share a single banana. <laughs> Comedy was just different, okay? And even in 1977, they used to do this top banana, second banana thing as a slang for ranks in any hierarchy of the organizations. So you could be like working for Apple. Well, Apple didn't exist then. But let's say today, if you were the team cook of Apple, it would be top banana. And then like everybody else, it's just like bottom banana. That's a different thing. <laughs> no, second, third, and... What like if you are like thousand something banana like that doesn't even roll off the tongue you feel like a piece of shit like i'm completely irrelevant in this place then because for the past couple of weeks i would never segue into the actual story of the day i put you know what else is bananas the ending to this story wow peak peak of, of script writing please employ me on an animation tv show Definitely deserve it. Just by this segue into the story. Are you ready? Strap, strap in. Strap in like you're in a car with a lunatic that's driving like 100 kilometers per hour. Is that even a fast speed? Anyways, strap like... Because this story... the story will piss you off. I mean, every Philly side story should definitely piss you off. If it doesn't, maybe consider like some therapy or like checking yourself to see like if you're a psychopath. But this one is... <laughs> It's yet another one that hits, like, straight into the heart. Let's do this. Okay, I don't know, did this place get haunted somehow? But literally, was recording, microphone was recording completely normally. And then when I went to stop the camera and start recording again, twice, twice, like, I recorded this whole introduction, like, twice already. It just, there was just no sound. (laughs) And I'm just there, like, unplugging, trying to figure it out. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? (laughs) Give me, give me signs. (laughs) Give me signs. (laughs) For time is the charm. Or I'm changing the mic. (laughs) Listen, I I just, I don't don't have it no more. (laughs) I'm gonna lose my shit. The story starts with Marvin's brother Frankie, his wife Irene, who lived next door to the family. And suddenly, one day, On April the 1st, 1984, they hear something that sounded to them like a gunshot next door. So Frankie knew at that time that his brother and parents lived next door. So obviously, justifiably so, he got concerned. And both him and Irene ran next door. They didn't even have to go into the house because his mother, Alberta, actually came outside. And she was shouting, he shot Marvin, he's killed my boy. So Frankie goes into the house, obviously being on alert, because he doesn't know, well, where his dad is at a point. Does he still have the gun on him? Is his brother still alive? So he rushes to Marvin's room, and there he finds his brother bleeding on the floor. And he sort of runs towards him, like tries to hold him in his arms to see like if there is any chance of reviving him. However, Marvin dies in his brother's arms. And Frankie reported his last words were, I got what I wanted, I couldn't do it myself, so I had him do it. It's good, I ran my race, there's no more left in me. Marvin Gaye's last words will become the premise of his father's defense. And the events before the murder meant that his father will get away scot-free, by all means necessary. This is the story of Marvin Gaye. Are we back? Are we back in the game? <laughs> this is why I have trust issues. I can't even trust technology. Like, who can I trust? Okay. Once done to the meltdown, let's actually get into what further happened on this day. So it was April Fool's Day, and it was also the day before Marvin's 45th birthday. Please, if you if you kill me, do not. First of all, don't. You'll end up in prison. I'll haunt your life. It's fine. Don't do it. But don't don't. Kill me before I turn of a certain age. It's like wow, hyping myself up for the burp. Then what do you do? You kill me. If I cough. Get a better hobby. So the year before, in August 1983, Marvin's sexual healing tour ended. Let's just let's just listen for a second to this this absolute banger. <laughs> And he actually returned to the U.S. after this tour to nurse his mother, because his mother actually had some kidney issues and has undergone a surgery. So he went back to the family house to sort of take care of her. The two of them, by every single article that I have read, were really close. I mean, a lot closer than him and his dad were, for the reasons that will become super apparent. And at first, when he returned there in August, everything was fine. It was just him and his mother. However, in October, his dad returned from his business trip to Washington. And that is, again, when this kind of chemistry wasn't working anymore. Because his dad was back. And his dad made it obvious from once he returned that he purchased insurance on the family's previous residence. And the vibe that I got from all of this was, first of all, Marvin, Marvin the son purchased this new house for his family. So technically, it was his own place. But he didn't even live there or wanted to live at, like, the previous residence. The previous residence was occupied by the sisters. And that is especially because of this growing conflict with his father. And between October, when his dad returned, and April, when Marvin's death happened, the conflict was just continuous. Like, the two of them just could not live under the same roof at certain point like his dad actually called the police and kind of kicked him off the property even though technically it's the son's house and then after Marvin slept at his friends he returned and he said after all I have just one father I want to make peace with him however the father wasn't backing down and wasn't seeing this as like a peace offering he according to a family member said that if Marvin ever touched him that he would kill him Of course, this conflict didn't just happen because a son suddenly decided to, you know, from his tour, return back home and take care of his mother. The marriage between Marvin and Alberta was deteriorating, you could say so, because by the 1970s, Marvin Sr., who was a long-time alcoholic, well, brought the side effects of his alcoholism to his marriage, because by that time, in 1972, the two of them actually moved houses, so they moved into the house that Marvin Gaye bought for them. But obviously, just like the child doesn't resolve your marriage issues, moving the house, moving to a better environment, moving to a better house, again, won't resolve your marriage issues. So the marriage continued to deteriorate, because Marvin never stopped drinking. So, we meet on Christmas Day, 1983. This is when the son gave Marvin Sr. a 38 caliber gun. And there are different versions of events as to why did the son hand a gun to the father. Everything that the father will say later is the son asked him to kill him. Marvin Gay was actually known for at least two that I have found in the articles failed suicide attempts. Some family members in the aftermath will say that the gun was given to the dead because his son was getting really paranoid and he thought that somebody else is going to attempt to kill him so that this was given to the dead to defend him. So everybody just goes on, kind of forgets about this gun, which um, is sort of important if you were aware of the situation and knew how toxic this environment was. So the days prior to his death, Gay's parents started arguing about this misplaced insurance policy letter. And apparently the day before his death, the two of them were arguing so much that, like, Marvin heard it in his room, he got out of the room and confronted his dad and was like, listen, my mom is sick, like, I'm here for a reason, you know, I'm, like, taking care of her, can you, like, stop harassing my mom? And apparently that started confronting him. But it stayed that. there was no violence during that night. However, the following morning, April the 1st or April Fool's Day, his parents started being at it again, started arguing again. And it was said like, Marvin entered his dad's bedroom, and then they started sort of, like, confronting each other. And There was a bit of pushing around. And Alberta claimed in the aftermath that she remembered her husband saying, he's kicking me, I don't have to take this. So Alberta is like, okay, let's calm the situation down, takes her son and brings the son to his own room, right? He's like, okay, it's fine, everybody's gonna cool down, it's gonna be all over soon. But she was wrong. Alberta would say that the son was saying, you know, I'm packing up my stuff, getting out of the house, that the dad hated him, he didn't want to come back. And a few moments later, as she's trying to convince him to calm the situation down, Marvin Sr. walks into the room and he is carrying a gun. He lifts his arm and points the gun directly at his son's heart. He doesn't stop there, because Marvin obviously slumps onto the floor. But his dad then goes forward and shoots him again, at his shoulder. This is when we meet Frankie and Irene again. They rush inside. By the time that they call paramedics, Kay was already pronounced dead. So it was actually the first shot that has proven to be fatal because it entered his chest and damaged his right lung, the heart, diaphragm, liver, stomach, left kidney. So his dad didn't even have to shoot him the second time. And it was reported later that Alberta ran out of the room because her son was already on the floor and she believed that she's next. And according to all reports, then the father went to his own bedroom and hid his gun underneath his pillow. Because he never tried to run. Again, I don't really get this part. Like, why hide it in the first place? So the police arrived to the scene 20 minutes after the shooting and Gay was pronounced dead at one o one p.m. Before we go to the dead zone defense, let's focus a bit of the aftermath of the events. So the autopsy and the funeral. Because there are a few important bits here. So the autopsy test results showed that Marvin had some cocaine. Cocaine? Say. No, cocaina. No. Say the word. I can never say the word. Cocaine. Yes, good, good accent. So the son was taking cocaine and angel dust or PCP. Well, he had it in his system, so it meant that he was regularly taking it or has taken it a few days prior to his death. And the judge would take this in the hearings to kind of determine that PCP can invoke violence in people, so this particular drug could invoke violence... But it wasn't a major factor in his decision once he reached the verdict. He was given the funeral on April the 5th that was attended by 10,000 people, including his Motown colleagues, so different stars, his two ex-wives, Anna Gay and Janice Gay, his siblings, mother, and his three children. This was very star studded when Smokey Robinson, Dick Gregory gave eulogies and Stevie Wonder performed lighting up the candles. His body actually ended up being cremated and his ashes were spread in the Pacific Ocean by his three children. And then his, one of his ex-wives and the adopted son kept a small sample in the ashes for themselves. I have no idea why, but this for me, I was like, wait, why? It's I don't fully get cremation in itself as in if i get cremation but then disperse the whole body in one because still yes you are in ashes but it's like your whole body for me this kind of seems like decapitation in a way but like post-death i know this doesn't make sense to people i'm aware does this make sense to everybody it's like no, like which part of me are you keeping, like in your urn, like you know, you spread part of me. Like, what part of me is this in in this urn? Is it in my penis? Because that's hella creepy. Like th- that's how my mind works. Okay, like I understand if you don't get it, but that's the thing. If you ever cremate me, I still haven't decided how I wanted to be, funeraled. <laughs> but yeah, if you ever cremate me, disperse the whole of me somewhere, cool in a cool place. Yeah, I found this to be so sad, but at the time of his death. Marvin was actually struggling financially, even though he was doing great, he just came from his tour. He was almost two million dollars in debt. Um, so he hasn't left a will or anything, but eventually, like his royalties paid off his debt and his son became the co-administrator of the estate. Now going into the trial, and let's first hear the account of the events from his dad's perspective. As you can tell from my tone of voice, I have no absolutely zero respect for his dad. So according to his dad, First mistake. First mistake. Senior. When the police is now interrogating him, and they kind of get the vibe. They they get the vibe that there was a lot of negativity here, that maybe he wasn't the favorite son for some reason, even though he was doing great in life. So they ask him, do you love your son? To which Marvin Sr. stated in his soft voice, let's say, I don't dislike him. It's your own trial, sir. Fake it. You gotta, if you don't feel the empathy inside, you gotta fake it a bit. Because otherwise, the jury ain't buying it. This is why I'm pissed with the verdict. This is why I will be so pissed with the verdict yet over and over again. Because he doesn't even try and he gets away with it. So according to the father, the argument started early on April Fool's Day when he went looking for his wife to ask her where she put the copies of the insurance policies. And he said like he heard her voice, entered the guest bedroom that was being used by the son, and eventually it moved to the gay's bedroom. So he describes that the son immediately turned violent. He took me from the back. I don't think this is what you're intending to say, but okay. So the son takes him from the back, grabs him and pushes him onto the floor, starts to beat the dead and to kick him. Quote, he kicked me everywhere he could kick me. End quote. So he says, the son then, like, continuously, he he knocks him onto the bed, and then the dad remembers that his son put the gun when he gave it to the dad. He actually was the one to put it underneath the pillow. So he's like, okay, cool, I'm on the bed, I can defend myself, there's a gun underneath my pillow. Seems legit so far, are you following me? Everybody else gave completely different account events, are you following me though? Also, if you're voluntarily giving somebody a gun in a potential suicide situation, why are you putting it under his pillow? Can he not decide when and where? I have a huge problem with this whole suicide theory, defense, whatever you want to call it. I'll get back to it. Alluding to that, Dad said immediately that he thought that there blanks inside his gun, so he didn't know that it was real bullets. So then why use it? Again, why not use like then your body, anything else, why are you shooting at somebody with blanks? That just doesn't make sense to me. So his whole defense is he actually didn't even know that his son was dead until a detective told him. So basically, he shot his son in a different room, thought it was blanks, decides to go out, ignore the screams, ignore the blood, whatever, because apparently he shot him twice, ignore, like, his screaming children coming in, then the detective goes to his room is like, Where's the gun? Like, your son is dead. Quote, Oh God of oh mercy, oh, oh, oh. It just shocked me. I just went to pieces, just cold. I just sit there and I didn't know what to do. Just sitting there like a mummy. End quote. The police lieutenant, however, this smart man, just sort of listened to that, probably was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. So you see how everybody else on the scene told me a different story to what you told me? What's that all about? Like, There's about, well, one witness that witnessed everything, and then two others that witnessed the aftermath of it. What is that all about? Why are you not alarmed? Why do you seem like you didn't give a fuck that you just killed your own son? But also, the police officer again smartly said, like, you know you didn't have to go to the ambulance, right? Like, you know that we we can see you physically. From what you were saying, you're describing a physical fight. Why don't you have any bruises? Like, where are any of your bruises? Like, this seemed like it was intense. You said he punched you, you said he punched you in the head. Where are these bruises that you're talking about? Like, by what you're describing, you should be disheveled. Like, we should have called the ambulance to save you as well. None of that seems... You seem to be like, okay, sitting here in front of me. However, what went into his own defense were a couple of things. First, Marvin Gaye's last words. So, like, what his brother has heard. I don't think that his brother had the motive at that time to, like, fake what he had heard. However, if you listen to that statement, let me know what you think. But I think it's too long for somebody that has been shot and apparently, according to autopsy, he had, like, most of his organs damaged. I've never heard last words by somebody being, like, two full sentences. So I don't know if that's us or if that's normal because I don't see the motive. I don't see why the brother would lie. Unless, again, he's in on it somehow. In which case, listen, Marvin Gaye is haunting your ass. Another thing that worked for the dead is that once they actually went to do his checkup to see, like, hey, do you have any bruises? They scanned his brain and they discovered he had a tumor. So it was the benign one. Is that how you pronounce it? Benign. Benign. It was a benign one. And then it got removed. And he also had psychiatric evaluations and was found competent to stand trial in the end. So some might say maybe he wasn't thinking straight, maybe this was affecting his brain, and maybe that's why he tried to, basically when he was sitting in the room while his son was bleeding to death, invent an alibi for himself. His wife did post a bail for him, so she posted a bail of $30,000, which honestly, too low, he might be a danger to his whole family. Why are we not seeing it the same way as I'm seeing it? And probably as some of you listening are fucking hearing this to be like, this, yes, did seem personal, but also, is it? Like, can he be danger to everybody else? But she also filed for divorce immediately. So the judge looked at all the documents, looked at those superficial bruises that Marvin Sr. had, What I think kind of convinced him maybe was the tumor, but also it was probably the amount of drugs in son's system that kind of was prevalent towards a decision that he has made. Again, fuck me if I know, I'd completely disagree with it, but I can assume that that was probably what convinced him. You know, his son turned violent. At best, he was defending himself. In which case, this is a manslaughter. So he granted Marvin Sr. with a plea bargain and, as a result, applied no contents to a voluntary manslaughter charge on September the 20th. And on November the 2nd, Judge sentenced him to a six-year suspending sentence and five years of probation. Basically, this guy served nothing. Nothing. He didn't even go to prison in the end. It was just all probation. He was just chilling at home. Maybe monitored, maybe not. For murder of his own son. I don't care, like, the manslaughter... The main problem I have with this is even if, let's say, Marvin Gaye, like your son, your own flesh and blood, anybody, your best friend, you, anybody, the stranger on the street comes to you and they're like, here's a gun. I want you to kill me. Your first thought. Cool, cool, cool. Ah, that, you, you got it sorted. Thank you so much for trusting in me. Oh, there is so such great trust that we have here. I'm definitely gonna kill it. I won't tell you when though. Oh maybe it might be April Fool's Day so people don't believe it. That's not your fucking first thought. Your first thought is to get them terrible. Like they are at the brink. Their mental health ain't great. Let's get them tracked up. Let's get them sorted. That that should be your first thought. Like literally even if it is a stranger on the street. There's nothing. None of that. Literally read articles and articles. None of that. That if that was what happened what a normal parent would do in those situations, there's none of that. Nothing indicating that his dad actually looked for help, looked to maybe get him off those drugs that are influencing his mental health. So the dad was sent eventually to one of those rest homes, they call it here, probably one of those for like the elderly. And he died of pneumonia in California at the age of 84 in 1998. So he lived, what? Trying to do math. For 14 more years. He outlived his son by 14 years. The son that he killed himself. You tell me that this is okay. Oh, so we're gonna go into the background now. Uh, Just on every point, the dad's career versus his son's career just doesn't match. No quadra, okay? This quote from the sentencing really just sticks to me and just tells me everything about the dead. So the dead's quote is, If I could bring him back, I would. I was afraid of him. I thought I was going to get hurt. I didn't know what was going to happen. I'm really sorry for everything that happened. I loved him. I wish he could step through this door right now. I'm paying the price now. Do, Do I need to count how many times he said I? Do we need to even count that he just sees himself in this? And Like, he was afraid if he could bring him back. He was afraid he was gonna die. So based on the initial reaction, always trust people with their initial reaction. If their initial reaction is like, remember when they asked him, do you love him? <laughs> well, I kind of think so. Like, I don't know. What, what, is, what do normal people say in these situations? Yeah, trust people with their first reactions. Their first reaction is emotionless while the whole mess is happening, while their son is literally dying in a pool of blood. Yeah, maybe don't trust them with the fakery afterwards. Onto to the background. What, what are your bets right now, before even listening to the rest of the episode? Is this gonna be some abusive motherfucking childhood generation by generation? If your bet was damn right... Straight up, straight up doesn't seem, seem like a loving household, so that probably means he didn't have his loving household himself. Yeah, bingo, you got it. You probably listened to way too many true crime podcasts, but hey, this is why we love each other. I was like, give me to me when I researched the background. I was like, give me some fucked up shit. So, Marvin Sr.'s dad, I fucking hate that they were both Marvins. Sorry, sorry, Marvin Gaye was a reverend who was born in 1914, and he was one of those fundamentalists, like, radical ministers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And later, he founded a sect himself that was called the House of God. You will never find a sect or a cult named something cool. You you just won't. It's always going to be something like House of God or, like, the People's Temple. The People's Temple, probably the coolest cult name yet. So his own parents had 12 kids and were physically abusive, Well, the dad, apparently, the dad in particular, was physically abusive to all of them. Just imagine having 12 kids and just getting it out, getting your stress out. You never know which one it is. It's just so frightening, because you never know which one of you is gonna get it, because obviously, I mean, 12 is a lot for somebody to beat up on the daily So it's just a psychological game. And Sr. eventually entered ministry in his late teens and joined the Pentecostal church as a pastor, which is around which time is when he met his wife, Alberta, and they raised a family of four children. So they have two daughters first, then came Marvin Jr., and then came Frankie. So Frankie was the youngest. After leaving this Pentecostal church, he formed a spin-off sect called the House of God. Again, like, your dad named the same way. Sure, why the fuck not? And he spent most of his time as the storefront preacher, this article says. And he would take sermons to different churches, where he would then take his eldest son, which was Marvin, to sing gospel songs. For Marvin Gaye, this is going to become his escape. Because he was born in 1939, and he was born in this environment where, from the start, inside of his home there would be violence by his father because his father knew nothing else. His father was brought up that way and he thought that's the way to bring up his children. Logic, there's none. And then on the outside, they lived in this public housing project. So it was poor, it was violent environment on the outside as well. The neighborhood was actually dubbed Simple City by the local children. So once his dad actually started bringing him to church and asking him to sing, this was kind of like a saving moment for him because he finally found a place where he felt safe and he felt like suddenly he was becoming really good at it he felt the music he felt he had a talent obviously when you were brought in this environment it doesn't help that your dad is kind of eccentric as well the outside world like the street started bullying um, Marvin and his brother Frankie because his dad was apparently known as a cross-dresser, as somebody who would sometimes in public dress into females' clothes, so it was very effeminate, I mean, even today I would like to tell you that she would just pass by and nobody would make fun of it, but probably wouldn't, so definitely in 1930s, 40s, this was not the norm, so obviously Marvin, the younger brother, would take the bullying and would try to defend his dad, like, begin with be like why the fuck do you care but because this happened in his young age i think it particularly stuck to him and even later when they questioned him he said like this was ridiculous like people because people obviously would make fun of like well your last name is gay so that must mean you know there's nobody else with that last name that must mean that your dad was homosexual and i think it was really imprinted in his name because their last name if you are a fan of Marvin you probably know, was actually spelled without the E in the end. And it was only Marwin once he established his stage name, etc. And, like, probably because of the effect of this, added that E to his name to sort of differentiate himself... Probably again, psychologically, because this happened to him at a very young age and left an imprint. While living under the family roof, Gay would suffer vicious abuse, like his sister described that this was on the daily and it consisted of a series of brutal whippings. And Marvin himself, the son, later said by the time that he was 12, there wasn't an inch on his body that hadn't been bruised and beaten by his dad, which is just so fucking sad and wild. And I think that is what instigating the suicide tendencies, because Marvin also later said that if it wasn't for his mother's encouragement, care, and actually her seeing, like, okay, this is an escape for him, the music is escape for him, but also he's, like, really talented... So let's kind of nourish this and get him out of this abusive household that he said he would have killed himself. And the sister Ziola would actually kind of describe the dynamic and how it started becoming obvious that it seemed like the dad was jealous of this relationship that the son and the mother had. That will become prevalent. And obviously, if he is actually thinking like this, because I wouldn't put it past him because he seemed like a childish fucking prick, even though he was the senior, apparently, and the minister of a church and shit. This probably prevailed once the son returned to the house to care of his mother, because the dad... Obviously, if you abuse your kid, guess what? Breaking news, the kid isn't going to be attached to you. They're going to, like, go to the other parent and ignore your freaking existence if you're coming into the room with a whip. Like, not mind-blowing, sir. And not just that, but the sister Ziola actually said that this escalated. And the reason why people have said, and why it was kind of obvious, that Marvin Sr. didn't really like or have any respect for anything Marvin Gaye did, was that he suspected he was not his son. So he suspected his wife was having an affair, which was unpounded. Nobody ever confirmed this, and of course, like everybody else, it was him who was having affairs on the side, and then we'll come and like beat like his kids, because in every single case it just happens. If somebody's blaming you, just please always think for a second like okay 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 are we just like mirroring what you were actually doing and you're trying to like put the blame on me let's just like reverse psychology this shit out of this and the other sister jean actually suggested her father mentioned to her in public on number of occasions that he is going to kill one of his children if they ever physically harmed him and this is just like what they lived with and kind of it looked like an empty threat, but then obviously when you come from that environment and you see how abusive he is to one of the kids, it probably doesn't seem so much of an empty threat after some time. And according to this article, Jean that actually gave an interview afterwards said that actually his brother's death accomplished three things. As morbid and as bizarre as this is, like if we are thinking that intentionally he provoked his dad to into this murder-suicide situation, that the son put himself out of the misery, he brought relief to the mother by finally getting rid of the husband for her, and he punished the husband, or that he's dead, by making certain that his, the rest of his life will be misery. Due to the music being his escape, actually from when he was just four years old, the son started performing songs at the congregation, the family church... And he went on to master the piano and the drums by the time that he was a teenager. So he immediately developed his love for r and and the wop, which was a form of blues. And I personally think that this was an escape for him and sort of a form of therapy, because he even dedicated some of the songs to his father, including God is Love. And he often mentioned that he was influenced by his father despite of this abuse during his father's sermons. By the time he was in high school, he would perform in these doo-wop ensembles, so like these high school performances. But at that point, the relationship was that strained, and obviously his father at this point couldn't abuse him the same way that he did when he was younger, but would kick him out a couple of times. So Marvin, the son, actually decides to drop out from the formal education altogether and to join United States Air Force. However soon, he realized he's not for the military life, And he actually allegedly pretended to be mentally ill to get discharged from it. After he left the military, he kind of followed his dreams to Chicago and then finally ended up in Detroit. And after kind of having a gig... From what I understand, this was kind of like when people do stand-up and they have like a certain gig where they perform a couple of sessions in Motor City, in his case. He was given the opportunity, somebody passed the word to Barry Gordy, who was the head of Motown Records. So this guy was a producer and he saw the potential. He was like, yeah, I want this kid to perform. Let's see if he's got anything. And this is when he signs the contract with Motown and he adds an E to the end of his last name, to disassociate himself completely from that family, and possibly because of what I was saying earlier on, not to be perceived as one of them, not to be perceived as homosexual himself, whichever one was it. But I think like the son was a lot more comfortable with his sexuality than his dad ever would have been. And his dad at this point, obviously because nothing is good, nothing is good for him, he accused him of making devil's music, so that's how the dad perceived his son's career. So of course, even though his career was great, because of this instability, Marvin Gaye's personal life wasn't as much. He actually married Gordy's sister Anna in 1963, he would get involved into a messy divorce, and not long after this marriage got dissolved, he got married to Janice Hunter, It wasn't meant to last, and at this point, it was kind of prevalent that he also started struggling with mental health. The wife would say that he once tried to kill himself by ingesting more than an ounce of pure coke while in Hawaii to, like, recover from the first marriage, in a way. And by the end of the second marriage of his, he would be in financial problems. He was an addict at that point. So he actually committed himself to this Belgium clinic. So he went like all the way to Belgium and went to clean himself up. And it was actually during those times that he has written sexual healing and then obviously produced it later once he got himself out of that institution. However, even once he has gotten out, he hasn't completely stopped using drugs, and friends and family described his last months as tormented, because, again, he had a suicide attempt where he jumped out of a sports car trying to kill himself. And unfortunately, I can't stop thinking that somebody could have prevented this, because once he was touring, again, people have said that he would go back to coke. He would go back and abuse coke, because touring was filling him up with so much anxiety like he didn't actually like it he didn't actually enjoy it much which i mean i understand like if you are performing that's what brings you the most money especially at that point it wasn't like wow you're also an influencer and you can do brand deals and don't need to tour during like quarantine and shit like this The touring would trigger coke abuse, and then coke abuse would further trigger paranoia, obviously. So, during his touring, he was actually seen wearing a bulletproof vest, even when he was on stage, and would just get properly freaking paranoid. So, people said that they would see him wearing, like, worn clothes, and he would even carry a handgun inside of his pocket of the robe, which is just dangerous on so many levels. They'd say that they would see him using drugs, even when he would be doing banal things like reading from a Bible and watching pornography on TV, which is somehow the least problematic. Like let the guy get off, like he was divorced twice, <laughs> let him live his life to a certain degree. But also, if you if you are like a touring manager or somebody touring with him, and you notice all of these triggers, maybe just maybe be like, mate. You can't do like you need to sort yourself out before you put this much pressure on you. So yes, it kind of does make sense that he might have given his father the gun like if you're considering all of this might have happened. But then doesn't justify what his dad did doesn't justify that he never looked for help for his own son never was like oh yeah let's commit you to the institution again it just doesn't justify it (laughs) what i put in the script is you need to get the toxic people out of your life completely 110 percent. get them out completely never see them again if you have like that relationship whichever it is if it is with the partner if it is with somebody trust me if you don't get yourself out of it like you know the case that i started this podcast for The one, like, up north where the guy broke off with the girlfriend, but she didn't move out. And then, because everything that they do at that point is gonna trigger you in some way. Even if they're just existing. It's gonna fucking trigger you. And then trigger after trigger, one day you might just snap. It does not matter, literally, what they do. Has he given him the gun or not? This is a toxic fucking environment, and this was just bound to happen. The point of no return here was once Marvin Gaye came from the tour and decided to go back to his house. So what motivated this filicide? A brief rundown of what we spoke about last week. So there's five motives. Fatal maltreatment. Altruistic, so that's the one where they believe that it's in child's best interest. Acutely psychotic, unwanted child, or spousal revenge. I think a lot of you might agree with the altruistic one here. If you do think this is voluntary manslaughter, if you do feel like this was trigger after trigger, Maya. Like, it doesn't come as a surprise that maybe one day he would just hand a gun to his father and say, fuck it, like, let's end it. Like, I have tried so many times to do this myself. I clearly can't do it on my behalf. But then... There's no emotions, there's no empathy for me to be like, no, this child, you know, had a family meeting, said, like, we need to do something about this, hospitalized him, showed any interest into maybe getting to the bottom of the issue here, trying to do everything else and then resorting to this. So, I truly don't think that that was the case. I am kind of leaning on the verge between unwanted child and spousal revenge, both connected based on something that was rooted in Marvin Sr. since, well, his childhood and then since what he passed on to his family. Which is also supported by this line from Alberta, who said, My husband never wanted Marvin, and he never liked him. He used to say he didn't think he was really his child. I told him that was nonsense. He knew Marvin was his, but for some reason, he didn't love Marvin. And what was worse, he didn't want me to love Marvin either. So when it comes to philicites, when they are uh, father-inflicted, compared to the mothers, usually with mothers, it happens once a child is small. It's usually with their hands, so it kind of involves, like, drowning, smothering. It's swift, and the child doesn't see it coming. With dads, it happens when the child is older, which matches here, and it usually involves a weapon. And weirdly, how this is so on point by paternal perpetrators either have a personality disorder or have abused alcohol or were violent towards their mates. So usually they have endured some emotional abuse from their parents or guardians, and some of them also engaged in that themselves. So in both alcoholic abuse and domestic violence, which is just so spot on when it comes to this whole family. So in order not to end on a miserable note here... I have left the legacy part of this story towards the end. Because I like when it comes to famous people, you know, the way i did, done it with Princess Diana, to end with their legacy, and to also end with a quote from their life that, well, myself and hopefully other people might resonate, might resonate with. It might, you know, show them the path, define their life story, or something along those lines. So a couple of cool things happened after Marvin Gaye's death, starting in 1985, When annual Marvin Gaye Day celebration started in his hometown, which was Washington, D.C., followed by 1986, when his mother, Alberta, founded his memorial foundation, which is dedicated to those suffering from drug abuse and alcoholism. Unfortunately, she didn't live to see it open and to see it being sustained, because she died of bone cancer in May 1987. Again, nobody wins situation. Nobody fucking wins. His dad outlived them all. Lived as miserable or not of a life for about 14 years compared to his son. And then his own wife who died like only three years after her son was killed by her husband. It's just so fucked up. But one of the things that I feel Maringey would have been really proud of was that he got a star on Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1990. And this is after, like, celebrities have petitioned. Like, people were like, this guy influenced our life. In particular, Eddie Murphy probably heads down to Eddie Murphy because probably he single-handedly has done this. He was, like, spamming the bosses of Hollywood Walk of Fame for years. Whoever was the CEO was like, oh, for fuck's sake, like, might as well listen to this guy. He's, like, kind of famous now. So, in 1990, he got his star. And six years after that, he posthumously received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2006, even the old park that he frequented as a teenager was renamed after him in his honor. Fuck yeah! It was called Watts Branch Park before. Duh. Of course, it's cooler name to call it Marvin Gaye Park. Like <laughs> anything you put the name Marvin Gaye to is just ten times better. Like, what do you think? That Bench called it after Marvin Gaye. He's, he's living everywhere. He's living through he's living through objects and spaces. Okay, you made it weird. It was okay, and then you made it weird. And something that I would want myself personally, fuck the parks, even though I do walk through parks a lot. But in 2009, there was this block of Foot Street in Deanwood, Washington, D.C. So again, his hometown that was renamed Marvin Gaye Way. This is it. I want... My legacy to be naming a street after me. Actually, something that I find even cooler happens next, which is 2018. So people are like, no, we're keeping this fucking legacy going. The United States Postal Service announced that he would be featured on the first class postage stamp as part of the Postal Service's music icon series. Fuck. Yes. So like this series included Elvis Presley, John Lennon. This is it this is it this is legacy i want first class stamp, baby first class like imagine you send a postage you, you receive a postage my face is on it i, I haunt you for life that's it that's that's all the legacy that i want quote by marvin Gaye that i want you to live by and how i'm ending this episode follows i don't feel i have to conform to any particular expectations but i would like for my music to raise people's consciousness rather than lower it to give people hope. End quote. That's it for this case. If you needed that mission, if you needed that legacy, that extra motivation to be like, what am I really striving towards? It's lifting someone's consciousness instead of lowering it. That's what you should fucking be aspiring to. So keep doing that until next Monday, you know, when I'll see you here again <laughs> to argue about another Philly site. And in the meantime, make sure you follow me on the socials, that pod, or you can always hit me up with an email at podbam at gmail.com. But more importantly than that, even though my socials are like super important, like my mind comes out there and it's wild. More importantly than that, you keep making the world a better place. how did you do that? By lifting motherfucking people's consciousness. Don't know where lifted lift it, lift it. Gay taught you right. Also, how'd you do it? According to me. One motive at a time. Question everything. Question everything. Bye, fuckers. This turned into a threat. This, this turned into a threat real quickly. Bye for realsies. <laughs> a child.